The Unshackled Waves, episode 28. Hello and welcome to the Unshackled Waves podcast. I'm Tim Wilms, here for another interview show. Our guest for today uh, arguably has the the biggest CV of anyone who's ever uh, been on the show. So we are lucky to be joined today by Professor James Allen, who is the uh, Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland. His area of expertise is legal philosophies, uh, constitutional law and bills of rights. He has practiced law in Canada and the United Kingdom before becoming an academic. He has previously taught law at the University of Otago for 11 years, so he's been all around the world. Uh, it would be fair to consider him one of the few prominent conservative academics we have in Australia. He regularly writes for the Australian newspaper, The Spectator and Quadrant magazine. He has also been a guest on ABC's Q&A and other television and radio programs. He is the author of numerous books, which include his most recent books, uh, Democracy in Decline, uh, Steps in the Wrong Direction, which was published in 2014. And he is also the editor of the recently published book, Making Australia Right, Where To From Here, uh, which are both published by Conacourt Publishing, and we will provide a link to them in the show notes page. We thought we'd invite him on the show today to discuss his two most recent books, as well as get his take on the state of politics, both here in Australia and around the world. So, Professor Allen, welcome to the show. Tim, thank you for that introduction. My dad would have loved to hear it, and I think my mum would have believed it. Yes, uh, yes, it's it's quite as I said, quite a quite a large CV. So we're we're very lucky to have you on the program. I should also point out to our listeners that you're Canadian, not American. Yeah, but I like Americans, which is that's not universal amongst Canadians. And uh, actually, my wife and kids and I, we all have three passports. So uh, if you need any wet work done, just give us a call. We have Canadian, America, Canadian, Australian, and New Zealand passports. Wow, that's that, that's not a bad list. Not bad. It's what happens when you're one step ahead of extradition most of your life, you know. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's start with your most recent book, which is called uh, Making Australia Right, which is a collection of essays about how to bring about a more centre-right approach to public policy in Australia from some of Australia's best thinkers on the right. So what served as the inspiration for the book? Well, let me just firstly say that next week, next Thursday, it's being launched in Sydney by Tony Abbott. Uh, Apparently, Petta Credlin's going to be there, so I'll have to make sure I dress properly. If you've seen her latest article about how men should dress, you will be a little nervous going to that. But uh, I can't take a lot of credit for this book. Right after the last election, so last July, I got a phone call from the the man who runs uh, Connor Court Press, uh, Anthony Capello, who actually gets no government subsidies. He runs it all by himself. He puts out as many books as Melbourne University Press. And uh, I think the general feeling we both had, we were sort of in despair with the Turnbull government. You know, in the last election, they didn't campaign on the unions. They didn't campaign on free speech and getting rid of 18C. They didn't campaign on getting rid of the renewable energy targets. As far as I could tell, they campaigned on the fact that Mr. Turnbull had a sort of pleasant-looking face and, uh, you know, he made a lot of money earlier in his life. It was it was probably the worst campaign I've ever seen in my life. Um for any party anywhere. And uh, so Anthony gave me a call and he said, why don't we try to put out a book um, where people on the right side of politics just give their take on what's wrong. And so he gave me that brief and basically all I did was call up, I ended up calling 14 people and said, uh, you've got 3,000 to 3,500 words and we would agree a topic and then I'm very laissez-faire, you can do it any way you want. So in the book, you'll see quite different approaches. So I just made sure there was no overlap. So we have, say, Alan Moran on energy policy. It's a great chapter talking about uh, the insane policies here in this country. I, I got here in 2005, cheapest energy in the entire democratic world. Now, in 2017, we're amongst the highest cost. Now, we're seeing the effects everywhere, but this is just insane. So he has a great chapter on that. Um, Brendan O'Neill from the UK wrote on political correctness. 
Roger Franklin just did a diatribe about what's wrong with liberal parties across this country. I mean, they have stopped being right of center parties and they basically now try to be one millimeter to the right of labor parties, which is worthless. Um, Judith Sloan's got a good chapter on the economy. Fairly, it makes for a fairly depressing reading. Um, so there's just a whole cross-section of people. As I said, I called 14 people and only one said no. So basically, Gary Johns, I think the, the list of people is pretty good. Uh, it's for the educated layman. It's, uh, you know, 33,000 to 3,500 word chapters and there's 14 of them. So it makes for a good read across all sorts of areas, health, universities, um, just political correctness, as I said, just a host of areas interest rate policy. Yeah, so all of the proposals in the book I, I definitely think would be of great benefit to Australia, but uh, uh, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're in a bit of a uh, despair in Australia given the political climate in Australia. So do you think there's much hope that we could get some of these proposals implemented? Well, there's not a lot of hope with the current Liberal government. I mean, this is the government. You, you would like to think that when you elect a right-of-center government, they actually have some right-of-center views. And uh, that's pretty clearly not the case. So that's a big problem. I mean, this is a government that, in the face of all of the worry about inroads into free speech and the sort of awful Australian Human Rights Commission, when the vacancy came up, when Tim Wilson went into Parliament, it was the Liberal government and in particular, Mr. Brandis and Mr. Turnbull, they appointed Ed Santow to the Human Rights Commission. I mean, this is a man who's never met a Bill of Rights he didn't like. It's a man who's pretty left. It's a man who the entire time we've been worried about the QUT students and um, Bill Leake's cartoon. He hasn't said a single word in defense of these people. So they not only do they do nothing about 18C, they appoint to the top body the Liberals appoint to the top body people like Ed Santow. I mean, even Labour wouldn't have appointed him. So with a group of sort of, I don't even know how to describe it, they're either totally incompetent or they're morons, um, there's not a lot of hope on that front. Now, I think with the renewable energy target and something like that, there, you know, there's a tiny bit of hope. As, as South Australia you know, sort of slowly moves back to the Stone Age, which is where the Green Party wants to take them, clearly. As far as I can tell, they're against every form of energy. They're against hydroelectric because they don't want dams. They're against gas, against frank fracking. They're against uh, coal. I guess if you have a windmill and a solar panel, they're okay, but that's about it. So uh, in the light of how terrible that's proving to be, there's probably some hope of a little backbone on renewable energy targets. Um, Free speech, this inquiry is worthless, really, this joint parliamentary committee. It's like a yes minister committee to take it off the front page. I'm not really hopeful on that. I think Mr. Trump's helping on the peace on political correctness front. So there's, you know, I, I think if you leave Australia and move to the wider Anglosphere, there's lots of reason to be hopeful. Brexit was the best thing that happened in my lifetime in terms of a vote. Um, so that's incredibly optimistic. And for me, it was a no-brainer if you had to choose between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I would have taken Trump in a second. He certainly has flaws, uh, both personal and policy, but, you know, he's just miles better than normally what you see with right-of-center politicians. Uh, I mean, people say, oh, he's a terrible man, but if you just think about what he's done in his first two weeks in office, now I guess it's three. Um, so uh, he's erased all mention on the White House website of climate change. It looks like he's going to pull out of the Paris Accord. He's erased all Spanish language uh, from the White House website. It's English only. Um, he put Winston Churchill's bus back in the White House. I really think that's symbolically great. Um, he's ended all funding of any city that supports sanctuary cities. That's basically where they don't apply the law. He's hired 10,000 new border agents. He's had a complete freeze on all non-essential federal employees. You know, maybe our libs could learn from this kind of list. He's given the go-ahead to the Keystone Pipeline from the tar sands. The trade, the TPP trade treaty, uh, he has pulled out of that. But to be totally honest, when you read through it, there's an awful lot of corporatism in that. It's not that much of a free trade treaty as people think, and particularly on the um, areas related to IEP intellectual property, there's some parts of that treaty I don't like. 
So I don't think that's as big a loss as people think. I mean, I'm a big free trader, and Trump is weak on that front, but he's not as bad as, as the hysterical critics point out. He's offered the Brits a free trade treaty. He would, he's no worse than Hillary Clinton on free trade. And on every other thing, he seems better to me. So um, there's certainly areas of hope. But in Australia, we're at a pretty low ebb. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Uh, c certainly, yeah. I, you wrote in the book that uh, Trump is a is a game changer for us in Australia. Do you see a, a currently at the moment a Trump style movement emerging? Of course, it's harder in a Westminster parliamentary system, right? I, I tend to think that Westminster systems are better than U.S. presidential systems, but uh, a presidential system does allow scope for a person probably having enough money of his own to make this possible to basically come in and take over a party like a cuckoo and win a presidential election. I mean, Trump has no party political support, really. He's just his own movement. And the Republicans clearly did not like him through the entire primary season. Um, and uh, it's only because he's won, he's got a certain amount of tolerance within the party. Uh, if you compare that to a Westminster parliamentary system, it's much harder to see how someone like that could ever become prime minister. However, if you look for any sort of analogy, I guess the closest you come to is Stephen Harper in Canada, who is the former Conservative Prime Minister. But what some viewers might not realize is that Harper started as a sort of a, a think tank operator on the right of politics. He then founded the Reform Party. And when the original Conservative Party basically politically imploded, largely because it moved so far left, uh, the Reform Party came in and took over the majority of votes on the right. Of course, Harper's a much more articulate person than someone like um, Pauline Hansen, and his policies were much different. But what ended up happening is it ended up that the Reform Party ended up reuniting with the Conservatives, and they rebranded themselves Conservative, but it effectively was the new Reform Party, uh, which had basically conducted a hostile takeover. And that sort of thing is possible. So... Uh, your Stephen Harper was a, definitely an outsider. He did not go through the regular political parties. He founded his own party, and when the old Conservative Party more or less imploded, it's true that they re-amalgamated and they used the old party's name, but it was the Reform Party running them. That sort of thing's possible in a Westminster system. Um, a Trump-like, you know, without a presidential system, which I'm against, actually, I don't think they work as well, but if you want someone who's a disruptor, someone who's uh, going to blow the whole system up in some ways. That's much easier to do in a presidential system. Can't see it happening in Australia, but I can see the Liberals completely imploding because they've left such a, a gaping chasm on the right side of politics. Yeah, we're certainly seeing, oh, we've, we've seen One Nation uh, come back and we're also say, saw Bernardi uh, break away uh, as well and uh, and now we're, now we're seeing the Liberals and Nationals fighting with each other. Yeah, I think Bernardi made a mistake myself. I, um, you know, I, I don't think the way to do it in our system is to leave and start your own party. What I think he should have done, and I'm, I'm seeing this for the first time, I was thinking of writing an article about it, but I think what he should have done as a Liberal M, uh, member of Parliament, he should have just, on matters of principle that really mattered to him, he should have crossed the floor and voted against the government policy. On the taking our money with the superannuation changes, he should have voted against. When they gave up on repeal of 18C, he should have voted against, and he should have done these loudly. Um, so on a whole host of issues, he could have voted against the Liberal Party, and then if he were lucky, they would have thrown him out. It's much better for him to have been thrown out of the party than to leave. And he would have got thrown out of the party on principle. You know, instead of voting with the libs on these terrible policies they're making, just say no and vote consistently against your own party on principle. And then and then I think he would have been much better positioned um, to, to, you know, to rally people together. I don't like the way he did it. And personally, I'm not, I wouldn't be overly optimistic. Uh, any great success, I, I, I mean, I, I suspect he'll end up as a bit player uh, taking over the sort of family first role in South Australia. Maybe I'm wrong, who knows, but uh, I'm not abundantly optimistic. I don't like the way he did it. I think he should have first displayed a half a year of backbone and voting against the politics. There's nothing stops you in the Liberal Party from just continually crossing the floor and doing it publicly. 
And he didn't do go about it that way. It's the way I would have done it. Now, the book uh, offers mainly public policy solutions to current problems in Australia, um, but also uh, some of the chapters, they're also related to cultural issues as well. Do you, so do you think we need a cultural shift in Australia, such as in the media and in our institutions? Well, again, you know, the problem with saying that is you're not going to get a cultural shift until the, the right of centre party takes it seriously. So take the ABC. ABC, in terms of its television current affairs shows, hasn't got one single right-of-center person in um, presenter, editor, producer. So when James Dellingpole, the British journalist, comes out here, he says the ABC makes England or makes the, uh, the UK's BBC look like Fox News because the BBC does have a few prominent conservatives in major roles. We have nobody. And, you know, Turnbull... Uh, obviously loves the ABC. Mr. Turnbull will not go on Sky. Now, what kind of joke is that? He, you know, I don't know why. Is it because they're employing Peter Credlin? I don't know. But how can you have a right of center guy who supports the unbelievable bias on the ABC and then worry about cultural institutions? Or we have universities where, you know, at the, the upper echelons of all the universities clearly lean massively left. Uh, leave aside the professors and the social sciences and the arts. The, the leftward bias is huge. There's been lots of uh, empirical work done on this in the U.S. Um, law schools are seven to one Democrat voters when you look at uh, donations, which is public information in the U.S. Uh, and if you assume that Republicans are more likely to give money to the party than Democrats, may or may not be true. But if you assume that, then the bias is even worse. In some of the social sciences, there's a guy named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, who's a man of the center-left, but he hates the bias. Um, in some areas of the sort of psychology, um, the people who identify as conservatives who work in universities are under 1%. This is crazy, right? Um, there's virtue signaling, there's bumper sticker moralizing, and we have a, you know, that's one of the things that I think that attracted people to Trump. He just says the media is incredibly biased, and I'm not going to go and try to get uh, Lee Sales to like me. I'm just going to continually say you're biased. And in the environment we're in, we may be at the stage where that's the way to go. It's certainly not working where you try to cater all your policies, uh, you know, to inner city, upper middle class people with solar panels on their roof who are who lean a lot left. So I, I don't know what the answer is. We, we need to do something, but it would it would help if we had a mainstream right of center political party who took this seriously, this cultural problem in the universities, um, even in the major corporations. You know, what is it about Qantas where they think they have to spend money to promote the referendum on Aboriginal recognition in the Constitution, which is a terrible idea, if you ask me, as a constitutional lawyer. It's an absolutely terrible idea. It'll empower very activist judges. And, you know, as a sh why? What? You know, why should he be spending shareholder money to push something like that? I started flying Virgin after that. He also painted uh, the plane rainbow colours uh, last week as well. So, uh... And he's not with his own money. He's doing it with shareholder money, which is really irksome. But again, you know, there's nothing going to happen until people start, start calling it out. Calling it out and just saying, that's it. Not flying with you anymore. Preferably get some bad press. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective that yeah, it's uh, political leadership will will filter down to these cult, cult, uh, cultural institutions. Well, I think people will get a bit of backbone in the U.S. because of Donald Trump, because they realize that even though every just about every member of the press, I don't think he got a single major paper to endorse him before the election. The press hates him. Hollywood hates him. He still won. So. You know, the idea that there's a lot of reach out there from the columns of Paul Kelly or Peter Van Onselon or I don't read any Fairfax people, but whoever they are, um, clearly I, I suspect isn't all that true. I don't want people to stop buying the Spectator Australia because I, I make money from that. But so putting Spectator Australia to one side, um, the idea that there's a lot of reach amongst, you know, the sort of pontificating prognosticators is probably not true and and politicians are too afraid of that. I'd like to uh, 
talk about your other book, uh, Democracy in Decline, uh, which makes uh, a strong case for uh, majoritarian democracy as the system of government <clears throat> that results in the most uh, free and prosperous societies. Uh, you're against nations having bills of rights. Uh, why do you have such a strong faith in democracy? So I'll take them in reverse order. So here's the thing about bills of rights. A lot of people who are libertarian tend to think that if you have some right to free speech that, you know, these provisions, the words in the text are self-enforcing, um, but they're not. It's real life human beings who enforce these things. And 50 years ago, the lawyerly caste was sort of high Tory establishment people. It's not true anymore. You know, if you look at the top judges in Britain or Australia or the U.S. even, the top upper echelons of lawyers are, very, you know, they're, they're, they're left-leaning people. Generalization, obviously exceptions. But, you know, there's the Scalia's and the Thomas's, but they're not, there's not a lot of them. And so if you go down the route of a Bill of Rights, it's just really you're, you're empowering unelected judges, committees of ex-lawyers. And that's, that's a terrible idea. So I'm a Churchillian about democracy. I think it's the worst form of government, except for everything else we've ever tried. And the thing that, you know, I'm a small government guy. I want uh, strong borders. I'm sort of Hobbesian about the world. It's a dangerous place. But I tend to agree with libertarians about small government, low taxes. Where I disagree is this view that somehow this is all going to come about by magic. And if we write it down on paper, somehow... We're not, we're going to get to the outcome we want. And that's not what's going to happen. You really have two choices in the world. You can, you can go with the results that flow from giving everyone an equal say in voting, where you know you're going to lose a lot. You're going to win sometimes. Or you can trust to some aristocratic class. It might be top lawyers. It might be the bureaucrats who run the European Union. If you leave the democratic world, it might be the, the theocracy in Iran. But we live in an imperfect world, and it's going to be real-life human beings making these calls. And in terms of delivering the sort of small government outcomes you want, the empirical evidence is overwhelming. Majoritarian democracy beats anything else. It's Donald Trump who's cutting two regulations for every one put in. It's Donald Trump who's taking the tax rate down to 15%. It is not lawyerly sort of top judges who are deciding Brexit cases in the UK. And if you believe that, you know, there's some sort of English common law from the late 1800s that's small government and freedom of contract, you're just unaware of the facts in today's world. So I'm a majoritarian de Democrat as the least bad option in the real world. And I think the case for that is overwhelming. Um, even if you say, OK, well, you know, let's go with economists. Look at what the economists predicted before the Brexit vote. Every single one of their predictions is proven to be wrong. They all said it would happen before the end of 2016. The only prediction they got right is the currency would go down. They said the deficit would blow out, it's gone down. They said the economy wouldn't perform well in Britain. It's the best performing economy in the EU post-Brexit. Um, you know, I tend to agree with the American writer Bill Buckley, who said, I would rather be governed by the first 200 names in the Boston phone book over all of the professors at Harvard University. In the real world, your choice is between your fellow voters and some group, some other group, some more select group of people. Might be lawyers, might be landed arist aristocrats if you go back a couple hundred years. It might be people who think they're really smart because they work in universities. It might be the bureaucrats in the EU. The EU has not made a good decision now in 15 years. You know, the so and you know, they've insulated themselves from the voters. They got the euro wrong. They got allowing a million Muslims in wrong. They've made bad call after bad call after bad call because there's no accountability. Karl Popper, who is a philosopher of science, said, democracy is the best form of government because unlike anything else, it lets you throw the bums out. And you just don't get to do that with unaccountable, non-majoritarian, democratic, non-democratic structures. So the beauty of our system is it might get a lot of things wrong, but you get to throw the bums out. And sooner or later, you can get Turnbull out, you can get Rudd out, and one day you might get somebody half decent. So it's not, you know, I'm not a rose-colored, rose-tinted vision about democracy or about majoritarian democracy. It just is better than anything else, empirically in my view. And if anybody thinks it's not, I'd be happy to have that debate. You can start pointing out to me 
um, sort of all these examples where you're getting the outcomes you want in a non-majoritarian setup. I know that the, the most common uh, objection that uh, mainly libertarians have to uh, democra uh, democracy or pure democracy and why they favour, as it's called, constitutional limited government is a, is a safeguard against, uh, as the expression goes, the tyranny of the majority. <laughs> so uh, what, what's your view on, on the, the tyranny of the majority argument? So we'll take those in reverse order. Look, the tyranny of the majority is a bit of a slogan. You cannot mean by tyranny of the majority that in any democratic country, if you lose a vote, you get to put on the garb of victimhood and claim it's a tyranny. By definition, democratic decision-making means everyone counts the same and you vote, and a whole lot of people lose. And every time you lose, you don't get to jump up and down and say tyranny. So the whole idea of tyranny of majority is a little bit suspect to begin with. Now, you can make sense of the concept if you imagine a situation where there's some identifiable group of people who always lose. If you win on tax rates and you lose on something else you care about, that's not tyranny. That's everyone counted the same and I lost. And that's what you would expect in a country of 24 million people. You know, unless your name is Robert Mugabe, you're not going to be on the winning side of everything. And just because you care about it deeply doesn't matter. Lots of people on the other side care about it too. So the tyranny of the majority really only works if you can imagine a, a, a situation where some group of people loses a lot all the time on just about everything. Possibly blacks in the U.S. South um, in segregation days might count as a tyranny of the majority situation. The thing you have to realize is if you really are in one of those situations, and it might not even apply to the U.S. because, as many people have pointed out, the majority of whites in the 50s were against segregation. It was a federalism problem. It was whites in Alabama and Mississippi who were acting in a tyrannical fashion. But if you really are in a tyranny of the majority situation, then it's not clear what seven judges are going to do about it or nine judges. If the elected legislature is really out of control, they're not going to listen to the judges if they're acting in, in a tyrannical way. The pro see, the thing is majorities don't really do tyranny very well. If you want tyranny, you need the small group of people around Stalin or Hitler or Mao or Pol Pot. They, you know, minorities really know how to do tyranny. The majorities, you know, not so much. It's pretty half-hearted tyranny. So I don't think the whole slogan of tyranny in the majority is easy to cash out. And in the few instances where it was, and if you think of blacks in the U.S. South, it wasn't Brown v. Board of Education that broke segregation. That was 1956. As many American writers have pointed out, it didn't really do a lot. What broke, what broke the segregation in the U.S. South was Lyndon Johnson, who used up a lot of political capital to bring in the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, to send in the Civil Guard, the National Guard. You know, the Democrats haven't really won in the South since he used up all that political capital. Uh, it was majoritarian institutions that broke segregation. And, uh, you know, if you're in one of these unusual situations, you, it's not easy to get out of it. So on that, on that count, I don't really buy that. In terms of constitutional limited government, depends what you're talking about. I think federalism is a great thing. We don't really have federalism in Australia. Our high court has screwed it up completely. We're the only federal jurisdiction that I know of in the democratic world where the states don't have tax income tax power. It's completely crippled Australia. That was brought to you by the high court of Australia lining up with the federal government and first in the second world war and then shortly thereafter in a couple of cases. So we have a system where the, the people who are making really important decisions about health, about education, they're not accountable in any sort of money-related way. And so you get this disconnect. It's called vertical fiscal imbalance. Forget the jargon. You know, basically, they can spend your money, and it gets even worse in Australia. We then have horizontal equalization. So basket case jurisdictions like South Australia can make every wrong decision imaginable, and then they get money given to them. It's like some sort of uh, kibbutz, or, you know, Marxist kibbutz, where nobody, it doesn't matter what idiot decision you make, um, you're going to be compensated. So we have the worst. What The only reason federalism works is because there's competition. You go to the U.S. or Canada, for that matter, which is a fairly social democratic jurisdiction. Some provinces in Canada have high income tax, some have low, and they compete. 
And it's that sort of competition that drives good outcomes. And they're, and you know, if they bungle their decisions and they make impoverishing decisions, they get thrown out by the electorate and they have to fix it in South Australia, the equivalent. So federalism is a great idea. We don't have, it doesn't work here. The only good thing that Mr. Turnbull's ever said for me is when he said, bring back income tax power for the states. That's where we have to start. Um, a constitutional bill of rights, which is often what people mean by constitutional government, is a terrible idea for many of the reasons I've given. All it is is uber-powerful judges. And I used to be a little more sympathetic to a strong upper house. I've gone off that a bit. I mean, m many of your listeners will already know that our Senate is one of the world, I mean the democratic world's, two, possibly three strongest upper houses in the world. If you get elected in Canada or New Zealand or the UK with a massive budget problem, you just you just then have your entire electoral term, five years in Canada, the UK, three in New Zealand, to make whatever changes you want. There is no upper house stopping you. And so, you know, they can make unpopular decisions. And so there's, you know, there's no upper house in New Zealand and Canada and the UK have unelect, unelected ones, so they have no legitimacy. They block nothing. In Australia, we're in this weird position because we copied the American Constitution where our upper house thinks that it should be deciding budget matters. So they, in the face of a government with a mandate to do something about the deficit that's out of control, you have to bargain with Jackie Lambie or a guy who likes cars or some sort of, you know, obsessed ex-Victorian radio disc jockey guy. This is ridiculous. You know, you're not going to fix any of these problems. So I don't really like the way our Senate runs in this country. And I like Mr. Abbott's idea that, you know, the default will be a double dissolution, not a double dissolution, but a joint, a joint sitting. We need to do something. The, the Senate never blocks more spending. Julia Gillard had absolutely no problem passing any spending increase through the Senate because these basically unaccountable people you know, if you're elected in Tasmania, you and your five siblings are probably enough to get you elected. Um, they are making decisions and there's no benefit for them to be hard on spending. There's lots of benefit to spend like they're drunken sailors. And so we have really big problems and they emerge with our Senate. I think it's a big problem. Uh, I think we're going to get to the stage where there's a constitutional referendum on, on severely limiting the Senate. So, for instance, we could make the we could bring in the default rule in Canada that they can't block money bills. So, if nothing else, they can't veto money bills. That's the basic norm in the UK and Canada. So, at least then they're limiting themselves to non-spending items. Yeah, I've been I've been aware of, uh, of your of your views on the the Senate and uh, proportional representation for quite a few years now. But you're also uh, uh, as uh, point as you uh, said at the beginning of the show quite scathing of the current Liberal Party. Uh, so, do you still believe there is a role for for minor parties uh, in in Australia? So here's the problem with proportional voting. And basically, the non-Anglosphere part of the democratic world has proportional voting. I generalize, so there's exceptions. And Italy changes back and forth every time we go to bed. Um, and parts of Scandinavia are slightly different. But basically, in the uh, English-speaking world, we tend to have first-past-the-post type voting system. You can call it majoritarian voting. And the Australian preferential voting is a version of majoritarian voting. So basically, um, you run a horse race. That's why they call it first past the post. And in Canada, the UK, the States, if you win by a little bit, it doesn't matter. You have won. You get the constituency. Um, what that means is if you get 40 to 45% of the vote in Canada and the UK, you get a majority. Your party is going to win a majority. So it seems unfair. But the problem with proportional systems is it's almost impossible to get a majority. And so what happens is all of the bargaining takes place after elections, which means that everything political parties tell the voters before elections is worthless and everyone knows it's worthless. All of the bargaining takes place after the election. Voters are disenfranchised. In our system or the Canadian one, we're, you know, we're an offshoot of the Canadian British American one, produce two party rule basically. The, the cent there's a center-left coalition, you know, unions, environmentalists, inner-city solar panelistas, 
Um, there's a center-right one, uh, dry, economic, wet, social conservatives, and they have to hammer together a platform to take. And it, you know, it's it's dynamic, and within those coalitions, it's ever changing. And they take a they take a program to the voters. And when they win a majority government, they are expected more or less to live up to their program. The voters are enfranchised. In Europe, with PR systems, since no party ever wins, that's how the system's designed. All of the bargaining takes place after the election. It looks fair if you just take a simplistic view of it, but in fact, in uh, majoritarian systems, 40 to 45 percent of the voters actually get their way, whereas in a proportional system, it's a very small number, almost no one. Little parties with 8 percent of the vote become kingmakers. The entire manifesto that a party takes to the election, no one treats it seriously because you know, no one, everyone knows you're not going to have any hope of getting that through the coalition negotiations. So I don't like proportional systems. I think they, they are not good systems. I like our preferential system. I like first past the post. I would take preferential over first past the post. Both are fine. Um, the problem with our upper house Senate is, yes, David Leinhelm's fine. Yes, Bob Day was okay. But when you look at the track record, they're not, their track record in a larger Senate sense is not good. The Senate is passing more and more and more spending, and they basically pass no spending cuts. So today we have, um, I can't remember his name from South Australia, Xenophon. Um, you know, he's blocking minor, minor tax cuts and minor spending cuts. So we need to do something about the Senate. The, I would personally go back to the voting system that Australia had up until 1949. So for the first 50 odd years of our federation, where you basically end up with, you know, you, you run a preferential voting system in effect for the upper house, which leaves you in effect basically with two, two dominant parties in the upper house as well. And if, if the party in the upper house is different than the one in the lower house and they block spending cuts, you, every, the voters know who to blame. If you agree with them, you vote with them. If you don't, at the next election, you don't. In the setup right now in Australia, how do you, if you live in Queensland, how do you punish Jackie Lambie? How do you punish Hinchy or Hinch or whatever the hell his name is? There's no way to punish those people. And anyway, they only need about some minuscule percentage of the vote in their own state to get reelected. So they're basically unaccountable. And it's a bad system. You you want to you want in the upper house. You know we copied the American Senate, but they have kept a two-party system in their Senate. So if you're going to have an upper house with the kind of power that an American-style Senate has, and again that's pretty much us and Italy. No other jurisdiction in the world runs the kind of upper house that we have. And you know I I always always struck when I got here. All these commentators would go, well you know Mr. Abbott or Mr. Turnbull really has an obligation to go and bargain with Jackie Lambie. You know, I think, why? Why? Jackie Lambie has no democratic legitimacy, not compared to a government that's just won a thumping majority. Um, you know, they, they, your vote in, in Tasmania for the Senate is about 15 times more valuable than New South Wales. By definition, the Senate is less democratic than the House. And the voting system makes it even more, you know, she can get a couple thousand votes out of 24 million, and we're supposed to go and bargain with her over um, what to do about the massive deficit. It's a crazy system in my view, and if, it, and if they keep it up and they're so um, disconnected from what's happening in the wider economic reality of Australia, then we're just going to have to blow up the Senate, and I mean that um, metaphorically. We're going to have to do something about the voting system, we're going to have to limit the powers of the Senate. Or it might even come to the point that we have a Section 128 referendum and just get rid of the Senate, which I'm not in favor of yet. But if the if we stay on the same trajectory, then that's going to become an attractive option. So the the current crisis in the in the Liberal Party it hasn't shaken uh, changed your views about uh, a two party system. Well, no, because the alternative, you know, the current crisis. The little, the little players are, are even worse right now. And uh, the crisis in the Liberal Party is opening up a, a massive sort of gaping hole on the right side of the political spectrum, but it's being filled by One Nation. Now, I'm not completely against everything One Nation says, but they're not my first choice for making policy for Australia. Um, the problem is that by moving so far to the left, the Libs have um, created this big opening 
And to be totally blunt, it's not the Liberal Democratic Party that's taking over that space. It's one nation. And, you know, if you were being a hard-headed realist, it's pretty hard to see the Lib Dems taking that space. You know, the, the people who are taking that space are one nation. In the latest poll where I live in Queensland, they're over, they're up around a quarter of the vote. That's in a poll. And I'm, I'd bet anything that that poll understates their support because there's a lot of people who'd be embarrassed to tell pollsters they're supporting one nation. Um, Campbell Newman, the former premier of Queensland, thinks they're going to have the balance of power in Queensland at the next, after this year's uh, state election. So, um, you know, I think two-party government on the whole does better than multiplicity of little parties. I think that's true when you compare the UK to European countries or the US. But the problem, the real problem in Australia right now is our main centre-right party is not a centre-right party. It was a terrible error to get rid of Abbott and choose the most left-wing liberal option going. Um, I know that Mr. Abbott was a disappointment on many fronts, but on every single one of them, Mr. Turnbull's worse. He's crazy, right? He has done, doesn't care about free speech the way I do, um, has increased taxes on our superannuation. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to point to something that looks like uh, what you would want out of a center-right party. So what we really need is to move back to a political... And, and, you know, often you would... I, I used to hear people say, oh, the Abbott government is so right-wing. And you'd go, okay, name two things that Mr. Abbott was in favor of that was right-wing. You know, he basically was to the left of Bill Clinton. You know, he increased taxes on the very top earners. He wanted to bring in a paid parental leave scheme. He was happy with the RET. Now, I... I accept all of those criticisms of Abbott, but he's still better than Turnbull. And I don't know. I have friends who like Turnbull. They don't like him. They think he's a better option. But Abbott would, he would be positioning the Liberal Party further to the right than Turnbull. That's inarguable in my view, unarguable. And, um, you know, I would right at this stage go to, I would throw a dart against the, uh, into the party room of the Liberal caucus and whoever it hit would be a better option than Turnbull unless it was Julie Bishop. No <laughs> way can she take over. But anybody, um, preferably not someone involved in the coup. I'd go back to Abbott over Turnbull in a second. Dutton's okay. I'm just not sure about how, you know, perspicacious he is, but, you know, what the hell. So I, I think the main problem in this country right now is we have a Liberal Party that's been captured by factions, they have. They seem to have no real beliefs that really line up with right of center views. They care more about keeping their chauffeur-driven cars. They're appointing people like Ed Santow. They're, you know, basically you have no confidence that principle matters at all. You can't point to a single cabinet minister, not one cabinet minister, who stepped down from cabinet over 18C. You know, anybody who, when 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 the Liberal Prime Minister says, "I don't care about free speech." If you're a cabinet minister in a government like that, then you step down from cabinet and go to the backbench. Not one did it. Pathetic. When a liberal party prime minister wants to take money from superannuants, but he's not doing anything about defined benefit pensions, not really, you step down from government and go to the backbenches. They do nothing. You know, I sort of like Josh Frydenberg. What kind of cabinet minister goes around calling one of the two candidates for U.S. presidency um, and the one who ended up winning, who goes around calling him a dropkick? This is our right-of-center party. They're a shambles, and that's the real problem in this country, in my view. Yeah, it's certainly very frustrating, but well, the, the spinelessness of a lot of the, the MPs in the Liberal Party. Now, I, wanted to... I mean, when you say spinelessness, you're actually being unkind to octopuses. Um, you know, you know. A squid has more of a backbone than most of the members of the Liberal Party. They are, you know, a disgrace, really. And it's even worse at the state level. So as bad as oh, yeah. are federally, at the state level, you know, you look at Victoria. Yeah, Victoria. They're there. just a disgrace. You know, they, they don't seem to have a single Liberal view. Uh, New South Wales, they're also pretty bad as well. I hear that from the other people I work with at The Unshackled. Now, I wanted to go back to uh, uh, 
your work on democracy. So uh, I'm a libertarian, but I've come away uh, to your uh, come around to your way of thinking about how we need to accept the results of elections. I don't believe that libertarians can simply say something is a right and think they've won an argument. I mean, after all, capitalism is a democracy with people voting with dollars instead of ballots. But I also believe in localism. Uh, democratic decisions should be made as close to the people as possible, and that people should even have the right to secede. So therefore, I don't mind the idea of California seceding because they don't want to be in Trump's America. Uh, what do you think of the idea of localism and even secession as a, as a solution to uh, democratic uh, disagreements? Well, I think in terms of um, economies of scale, federalism is another word for localism, right? The two main arguments for federalism, I gave you the first one, it, turns, it, it, it revolves around competition. And the ancillary argument, the one that Antonin Scalia, the former and now deceased uh, justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, like to give is federalism satisfies more preferences. So if you devolve decision-making over, the example he liked to give was pornography or, say, same-sex marriage or something like that, if you have an issue in a jurisdiction like Australia or the U.S. that splits people, say, 51-49, it doesn't matter which way, uh, take pornography in the U.S., um, if you devolve it down to the 50 state governments in the U.S., you're going to find that New York and California and Massachusetts are liberal, and you're going to find that places in the South and the Midwest are less liberal. And by having different rules in different places, you might, instead of satisfying 51% of the population, you might satisfy 75%. I mean, there's still going to be losers at, the, at some level, even as you make it a smaller. But that's not a bad outcome. And so the idea of federalism is you have difference. The difference creates competition. But the difference also means that you satisfy more preferences, um, which is why when people in Australia, the least federal inclinations I've ever come across, because my students all say, but we want, you know, it's not fair unless everyone has the same rules. That's one size fits all. You, you can move to a unitary state like France or something. Um, so I like the idea of federalism. The problem is that you can make the, the area too small. Um, and I think if you mean by localism, little city council areas, they're too subject to capture. And I'm not in favor of localism in the sense of um, sort of cities or municipalities. The federal government, the Commonwealth government, will just capture them, and in a, in a way you'll get um, a sort of centralized unitary outcomes. You need to be big enough to occasionally stand up to the center. So at the state level, if you look at provinces in Canada, they stand up to the center because they have their own tax base, and it's a big enough tax base that, you know, they're not mendicants. The reason all of our state premiers are worthless mendicant beggar people is because they don't have enough, they don't have a money base of their own. The feds basically can either, they, because of the interpretations put on our constitution, wrong ones in my view, by the High Court of Australia, basically the feds win on everything. But if there's some area where they don't actually, they, they, they don't officially win the feds, they just buy their way in. They can, you know, there's tied grants and that's all allowed. So our states are just mendicants, they're beggars, and that doesn't work. In Canada, they're not. They have income tax power. They, they can tell the center to get lost. And that happens a lot in Canada, where I'm from. It certainly happens at the state level in the US. It happens with Lander and Germany. Swiss cantons are more powerful than the center. So federalism works. Federal jurisdictions in the democratic world are wealthier per capita than non-federal ones like France. And not only that, there are fewer civil servants per head of population. You know, in Australia, you always hear, oh, federalism, it's duplication. But if you work at a university in this country, it's the most one-size-fits-all unitary setup imaginable in the entire world since communist East Germany. And the number of bureaucrats just multiplies. So the idea that because there's two layers of government, there's more civil servants is wrong. Um, there's more civil servants in the unitary state, by and large. Our problem in Australia is we have the trappings of federalism. It's written into our really quite wonderful written constitution, and it's been completely undermined by a series of bad federalism decisions by the High Court of Australia, um, you know, going back 80 years since the engineer's case, 90 years. 
And that may well be unfixable. I don't know. But we definitely have to start to try to fix it by giving tax power, I mean income tax power, back to the states. And then they spend the money they raise and they're accountable and the voters can punish them. I don't, I don't agree, Tim, with you to go below that level because I don't think you're a sustainable unit and those sort of little incredibly small local bodies get captured. Um, you know, you get these wild sort of little boroughs in London and stuff. Uh, so I want localism in the sense of I would like strong powers with the state or cantons, but even Switzerland doesn't go down to the micro level. At some level, the, the theory's not right that you, you get better outcomes. I mean, if, if you were right, then, you know, your argument, you, you know, you could take it to an absurd level. You just, you know, your, your decision-making unit should be two people. So I like federalism. I think we should start with um, reinvigorating our states in this country. Uh, you, if you want secession, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not in favor of it with Scotland, but if they vote for it, good on them. I'm not in favor of it for Quebec, but I have less of an objection to Quebec than I do to Scotland. Since the American Civil War, no U.S. state will ever be allowed to secede. California will not secede. The history of the U.S. with so many people dying in the Civil War is secession is, it's just, you know, you're just kidding yourself if you think California will ever secede. It won't, um, in my view. So it's, it's not even worth talking about in the U.S. Secession is quite a radical libertarian idea, but I thought I'd just throw yep. it out there to see, see, see what your opinion was. Now, my final question is, uh, I wanted to talk a bit about the, the state of our universities, which, uh, if anyone who's been on the internet would know, appear to be under the control of social justice warriors and far-left academics around the world. Uh, but what is life like as a conservative academic? Have you ever run into trouble because of your views in your academic life? Look, I have been very lucky. I have got objections about how universities are run, but my University of Queensland has never said anything to me about anything I've ever written. I think possibly because they don't read the sort of stuff I write in. I'm not sure anyone in the upper echelons reads. I know they occasionally read Quadrant and my attacks on universities, but let me give credit where credit is due. I have never had anyone say anything to me about anything I've written. Um, I think I was lucky that I came in I got headhunted from New Zealand at the level of a professor. I have the oldest named chair in Australia. I don't need to go for promotion. Uh, I definitely believe that in some areas of universities around this country, if you're going for promotion and you have center right or right, right of the political spectrum views, you're stuffed. Uh, it won't be direct. It'll be indirect. The evidence for this is there's multiple, there's a multiplicity of evidence in the U.S. context. Um, I mean, I, if you can email, anybody wants to email me later, um, John McGinnis in the U.S. in the context of law schools looked at um, Ivy League law schools and your donations to political parties, which in the U.S. is public information, and of those professors working in Ivy League universities, something like six and a half to one uh, are Democrats. Yes, and you mentioned you, that before. Yeah, and it's worse. It's worse in non-Ivy League universities because if you're a right of center person, you're probably willing to tough it out at Harvard, but you're probably not willing to tough it out at Vermont or the University of Hawaii or something. Um, so it's clear that there are far more, and, and, and there's a trend you can see since about 1920 when left-right used to be about one-to-one -one in universities, 20-to-one in the social sciences. I mean, just imagine how many people on the right of the political spectrum, do you think are working in women's studies departments? How many do you think are working in Aboriginal studies departments? Uh, my guess is it, it rhymes with the fifth Roman emperor, the, uh, the pyromaniac. Uh, that's how many work in those departments. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, now, there is an upside to all of this. So it's an unusual one, but those of your listeners who agree with me that John Stuart Mill really had the best argument for free speech. John Stuart Mill, by the way, was a consequentialist. He was a utilitarian. His dad was in the John, the Jeremy Bentham circle. And, you know, if you read On Liberty, Mill makes a utilitarian argument. He doesn't say there's a natural law entitlement to free speech. He doesn't say you're born with an entitlement to free speech. What Mill says is, 
better you get better outcomes when there's as much diversity of viewpoints as you can uh, as you can get. In fact, Mill went so far as to say that if nobody held a certain view, it might be worth the state paying someone to articulate it. So the obverse of that is, I mean, I'm against bills of rights, but I work in a sea of pro bill of rights. You know, public law, legal academics in Australian universities, it's 99 to one. I mean, there's, there's about five of us against bills of rights. We can't travel on the same plane. Um, but I know every single argument on the other side because I hear it every day. Many of the people on the other side, you know, if they don't work at UQ, they have never run up against anybody in their entire life who thinks differently than they do. So that makes them feel good. It makes them you know, feel like they're on doing God's work. But when you run up against them in a debate, they're completely unable to articulate answers. And this is what Mill meant. You, it's good for you to be confronted with views you don't agree with. It's not good in the sense that you, you, know, you like it or you enjoy it. But, you know, I think it's worthwhile once in a blue moon to pick up the age newspaper. You might want to vomit. You might want to think, my God, this is awful. But it's good for you to actually sit down and have to confront these views you don't agree with. And they don't get that advantage. And so the real sort of problem with our universities is there's such a monolithic outlook. And it's not good for students. Now, personally, I believe that our students are clever enough and they're so... You know, they, it, the, the indoctrination or the attempted indoctrination is so apparent that the students just know what answer is expected of them and they become so jaundiced and they become so cynical that actually the attempted indoctrination doesn't work. If it were a little more nuanced, if it were a little more sophisticated, maybe they'd win over more students. But I think that there's so much left-leaning, uh, you know, overt politicization that the students just regurgitate whatever answers expected of them. They leave university and at least to some extent, some of them aren't affected by it because they're cynical. Maybe I'm being optimistic about that. Um, but again, it's not a good situation. I wouldn't recommend anyone to go into university life these days because it's not, not so much because of the politicization, which is there for sure. And it does affect people going for promotion. It's more the massive bureaucratization in Australian universities. This is one of the things I agree with people in the, you know, I tend to be on the same side of this issue as people who are big union people. You know, I've got people, I mean, when I worked in New Zealand, the head of the academic union asked me to run for the, the council, the senate of the university, because, uh, you know, we were both against the bureaucracy. I, I've worked at Australian University since 2005. And at the level of our law school, we have never got to vote on any important issue ever. It's one size fits all. It's like working for General Motors in the 1950s. We, you know, the decision making is done at the top. It's filtered down. It's everything you would imagine as a small government person that bound to go wrong does go wrong. Vice chancellors are 1.3 million a year who fly first class and business class. A, you know, a myriad of deputy vice chancellors, all overpaid, you know, telling people how to do their jobs when they're not really very good at it. The focus is always on the 5% of people who aren't doing their job properly, and so they impose rules on everybody. Um, in the old days, you just lived with the 5% who weren't very good. Today, the rules don't actually ever make anything better, but they ruin life for the other 95%. It's a terrible, over-bureaucratic, over-managerial system. That's the real problem. The left-wing side of it, I really, you know, it's not good. But, uh, you know, certainly if you're, if you've got a bit of backbone and you make it clear where you stand and you're lucky to have at least one or two other people, generally people will leave you alone. Maybe I've just been really lucky working at University of Queensland, but nobody's ever done anything to me ever, personally. Maybe I'll get fired after this broadcast, I don't know, but I've been very lucky. And I don't normally give credit to anything to do with Australian universities, but I, I absolutely have no complaints on any front from the University of Queensland when it comes to, they've never told me in any way that I can't continue to say whatever I want. Uh, I myself actually had quite a uh, good university experience. I went to Monash University Caulfield campus, which there was absolutely no activism, uh, le left-wing activism there at all. So it, it was very peaceful. But um, that's all we've got time for on today's, uh, today's show. So uh, thank you, Professor Allen, for, for being our guest today. Okay, well, thank you. And just to show your viewers that I respond to incentives, those are, oops, 
Those are the flowers I bought for my wife for Valentine's Day because I'm not an idiot. I recommend you gentlemen to get out there and buy something while there's still time. Yes, uh, it's 14th of February, I, sh I should remind everyone, Valentine's okay, Day. Fair enough, too so, late. So, and I would also encourage all of our listeners to buy his books and also keep an eye out for, uh, for his articles in the conservative press. And I'm sure I'll run into you again at another event uh, pretty soon. But in the meantime, I wish you all the best and keep, keep up the good work and keep being outspoken. Thank you, Tim, and the same to you with your uh, website and podcast. All right, so that's the show for today. I'll be back f uh, next week for another review show. Uh, so uh, there's plenty of uh, the stuff that's happening all the time, even today, so there'll be plenty to talk about. Don't forget to sign up to our email list at theunshackled.net slash subscribe. <laughs> Don't forget you can also support the site uh, through the support section of our website. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or view the video version on YouTube. Uh, so that's, uh, that's it for today, and we'll see you next time. 